0: Hi everyone, this is Samira Daswani, the host of the podcast, The Patient from Hell. It is my utmost pleasure today to have two incredible guests joining us. They collaborated on a study that was published and sponsored and funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute that we will absolutely get into, but before we get into that study, I would love to spend the first part of our episode talking about shared decision making. So with that sort of thematic overview, I'd love to welcome Dr. Simmons and Dr. Sipuka, who doesn't go by Dr. Sipuka, but she will introduce herself as well. So Dr. Simmons, would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Uh, Yes. Thank you, Samira. My name is Lee Simmons. I'm a primary care general internal medicine doctor. And in addition to my work as a primary care physician, I serve as the medical director for our Health Decision Sciences Center here at Mass General Hospital.
2: Uh, Dr. Sapuka? Sure, so my name's Karen Sapuka, and I am a decision scientist. I'm a researcher at Massachusetts General Hospital.
0: My question to both of you is, and y'all can go in either direction and start and finish whenever you want, is how did y'all end up doing health decision research?
2: So I got um, hooked into this um, as a graduate student um, at Stanford. Um, I was in a department in engineering, that the mission of this department was to train students in rigorous analytic techniques, one of which was decision analysis, but then really encourage students to take these techniques to non-traditional engineering domains. Uh, So there were people looking at nuclear non-proliferation or other policy analysis, and then there was a big group doing medical decision making. Um, And that's the group that I was drawn to. I had um, ended up doing, you know, very early on in my uh, PhD work, a research project where I was interviewing women who had recently made a decision about breast cancer treatments, uh, learning about their experience, what happened, um, hearing about all the challenges and struggles that they had making that decision. And I just got completely hooked, um, thinking about, is there a way that we can take this structure, um, structured kind of analytic approach to make it a little easier um, and a little less chaotic uh, for people making decisions. And Karen, after graduate school, did you go straight to MGH? I had a little detour to a startup since I graduated right when there was everybody was doing startups out in California. Um, but pretty soon thereafter, came to um, MGH and, and landed at Mass General because they had a very rich history in shared decision making, and I, you know, was very. Um, very excited to to help uh, work with some of the you know, leading uh, founding fathers of shared decision making.
0: Uh, so Karen, one of the reasons this is uh, such a, I, I love this topic is I, I think there are two parts of your um, career pathway that almost intersected with mine. So I did my graduate education at Stanford, but I was in the design school. So not studying decision decision research or science, but it had always been part of the thinking behind how do you make creative decisions when deciding products and services that you're, you're building? And the second intersection point is, I am a breast cancer survivor. And throughout my experience, the biggest, the biggest piece that I struggled with was how you make decisions in that space. So there are two parts of your life, your career, your profession, that I am personally very, very motivated to learn a lot about. So thank you for introducing yourself um Lee how uh, would you want to introduce yourself to
1: yeah so my introduction into shared decision making as both a way to practice clinical medicine and as a area for further study um, to to improve health care delivery came directly directly inspired by clinical work I was a resident in primary care medicine at the Charlestown Healthcare Center, just a mile from Boston um, or a mile from my hospital. <clears throat> and I can clearly recall a patient who is new to me who um, had not had most routine preventive care, but not for lack of access to doctors or regular visits. And um, didn't want to do things that most people would consider pretty normal, pretty routine, like mammography, colon cancer screening. And she was the right age for all of those things. And I remember thinking, well, um, you know, we're taught that these things are the right things to recommend. And um, that, you know, the reason primary care is here is to make sure that people get these essential screenings. And as I was talking with her, I wasn't getting the sense necessarily that there was um, a need for more education on her part, though I have to be uh, clear that I was a first year resident, so you know I I probably could improve my own information delivery techniques. Nor did I get the sense that there was uh, a fear of doing procedures that was um, that could be addressed in a different way. And as I was talking with my preceptor, he, he said something along the lines of, "Well, you know, these tests aren't for everybody." Um, So your job will be to make sure she understands the decisions and you can honor that. And it doesn't have to disrupt the patient-doctor relationship, you know, that she's someone who doesn't, for example, do cancer screenings. And I thought that was just interesting. And it was like a new way that I was going to have to think about clinical care if I wanted to partner with my patients and develop, um, develop treatment plans that made sense for them. And I was really fortunate. I didn't know I'd landed at a hospital that had pioneered decision aid development, and really the field of shared decision-making in clinical practice. And my training came right at the time we were launching prescription of decision aids in primary care. So the next year I had a chance to send to a patient of mine um, a decision aid, which at that time was a sleekly, beautifully produced booklet and um, video on, on DVD or VHS. I don't remember which one he chose. Um, yeah, um, uh, It was a patient who spoke primarily Haitian Creole, but, but understood English. Um, and I thought, well, this will be you know useful for him as we, we were um, making a decision about colorectal cancer screening. And right before he was, he watched it and his next visit, he said he wanted to have a colonoscopy. So uh, great. I scheduled it. And then right before he was supposed to have the colonoscopy, I got a call from his daughter saying, could you send that video and booklet again? Because at that time there was a process to return it. The patients were to return it. Um, He has some questions and I need to watch it so I can explain the process to him. And I thought, oh, this is really good because... You know, just getting this high quality information in an accessible format to a family, even if it's not in his most fluent language, his daughter could watch it and explain it. Really useful. And so fast forward to a few months later, we're catching him up on things. We start talking about PSA testing, uh, prostate cancer screening, I should say. And um, he stops me as I'm launching into speech and he said, do you have a video about this? (laughs) And I thought that was a great um, add for use of these decision aids. So you can see why I liked it. I thought, this is fantastic. It's not that it's supposed to replace me or do my job for me, but it augments the, and it, it increases the understanding, augments my work. Um, and then when I graduated residency, um, I was paired with and, and, and introduced to Karen and the rest is history in terms of the work we've gotten to do together.
0: That is uh, such a beautiful and such a powerful story. I thank you for sharing that. That is absolutely, uh, it touches my heart on many, many levels and, and I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, but before I, before we do that, we've used the word shared decision-making a few times, but haven't quite defined it. So I'd love for uh, either of you to define it for us. But before you go into the definition, I just want to highlight something you said, Yeah, that was important, which was you partner with patients.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, I think that is such an incredibly important phrase that I think underpins a lot of the work that I'm imagining that both of you do and a lot of the work that we actually do, because the notion that you can partner with a patient automatically means the patient is a partner, i.e. equal uh, from a power status position to the clinician and their opinion matters. So I'd love for you to touch on that in any way you think is possible when you're defining shared decision-making and how you see the sort of doctor, patient, Relationship as it pertains to that.
2: Well, I'm happy to start, and then Lee can Lee can jump in. Um, you know, I think as you're sort of alluding to, we really see this shared decision making. It's a process, right? And 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 ideally, it's a process that really fosters good communication, um, and also sort of built on the foundation recognizing the expertise that different parties bring to the to the table. Um, you know we want to make sure that we're actually you know grounding everything in clinical evidence you know so what do we know about the tests and treatments that we might be offering patients and what outcomes you know might good or bad mm-hmm. might happen so we want to make sure we're grounding that in evidence um, but you know recognizing the clinician's expertise and saying okay well we know the evidence but who is this person sitting in front of me what is their situation how might they look like or not look like the evidence and how do i take that and tailor it to this person in front of me so that i can give them a really individualized sense for what they might be facing um, and then you know taking the patient and saying you know who you are what what's your experience of this disease if it's something that they've been living with um what you know, are your hopes and fears? What are your goals? So really understanding what's most important to the patient and using that to guide our recommendations and the decision-making process. So so really, you know, the ultimate goal is to make sure that patients are well-informed and that we do a good job of matching the right treatment to the right patient because it helps, you know, achieve what matters most to them.
1: To that, I'll add, sometimes we get pushback from doctors who say no. This, this this idea of sharing decisions and letting the patient decide and and decide what they want and they run the show, I can't do that. Why did I go to medical school? I'm giving you the extreme response, but we hear it. What we always say when that, that theme comes up in workshops where we're training physicians um, and in other settings, we make sure that um, they understand this part. No, no, your your ability to make a recommendation is absolutely intact um it's essential you know you're ultimately the one who's going to be prescribing the treatment ordering the studies ordering the chemotherapy <laughs> this is this is this is still it's your recommendation and your job but you're going to make that recommendation with the expert opinion of your patient about what's mattering most to them, what they're most concerned about. So you'll just have the best quality information possible. It in no way should be taking away your ability to make a recommendation. Sometimes we've had really well-meaning, earnest people say, I don't do shared decision-making very well. I talk to my patients about the pros and cons of the decision. I ask them, you know, what they're worried about I ask them what they want to do, and they say, "Well, I don't know, doc. You know, you you tell me. You're the doctor." And I always say, "But wait a second. If you got all that information from them, then you definitely can make your recommendation. that That is that is shared decision making. You can say, based on what you've told me, your concerns are, and what matters most to you. Here's my recommendation. How does does that sound right? You know, does that sound like I've captured it? So. I mentioned that because I think that the the definition is important, and then the application understanding of how and when you would use it is one that can always use some clarification.
0: Thank you for doing that. Can I ask a follow up to that, uh, which is, what does good look like? Like, what is how do you measure a good shared decision making process?
1: Well, you have quite an expert on the call here, so that goes to Karen.
2: As we've tried to conceptualize it, there's different components that are going to go into it. So first is, you know, do we have some evidence that those the topics that we've been talking about, was that ever discussed? You know, so did, the, you know, did you talk mm-hmm. about options? Did you talk about the reasons you might wanna do option A? Did you talk about the reasons you might not wanna do option A? Did the doctor talk to you about what was most important to you? you know, so you could ask, you know, we, we usually try to do patient-reported outcomes, um, uh, asking them to understand what was that conversation like when they were you know, working mm-hmm. with their um, healthcare team uh, to make the decision. So that helps us understand the process. There's there research-wise, there's lots of ways to do it. You can audio tape the conversation and code it for different aspects. Um, we can think about, you know, if this is happening well, um, you know, have we built more trust in that relationship? Have we you know, um, helped people reduce some uncertainty around the decisions, So have we have moved them along so that they're not saying, I have no idea what to do, but now they can say, oh, actually, I do know what's best for me. And now I can, instead of putting all my effort in the decision-making process, I can actually just put my efforts into, like, getting ready and preparing for whatever it is, whatever test or treatment is on the table. So, um, you know, we'll also look at, at things about, you know, where are they in the decision-making process, how much conflict do they have, um, and have we reduced that sort of idea of decisional conflict.
1: Ooh, uh,
0: can, we, can we talk about that? What is decisional conflict?
2: Yeah, so decisional conflict, I think it really recognizes that um, decision making for many people can be kind of emotionally charged. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's different elements. This is a you know, core construct in the research realm in, in medical decision making. Um, and it has you know these four domains. Um, so it's you know looking at, um, I'm going to probably mistake them now. Um, you know uncertainty. Um, so, do they have a feeling that they know what the right thing to them to do is? Um, an informed subscale. So, that do they feel like they understand the information and their options? Um, a values clarity. So, do they? Is it clear to them? You know, sometimes you can get the information, but you still—it's hard sometimes yeah. uh, with these medical decisions. We're asking people to choose maybe among treatments they don't have any experience with, and with. Um, outcomes that they don't know how to think about, you know, so for breast cancer, okay, so you could have a lumpectomy, you know, you probably have a scar, but your breast, you know, might be the same general shape look, you know, or a mastectomy. Well, I've, you know, how how do you help someone understand what was Mm -hmm. that going to feel like or look like or be like, you know, am I overestimating this or underestimating this? How is this all going to happen? So helping people understand, um, these different outcomes, so that they can have a preference about it. You know, people, uh, mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the one of the elements is that, that values clarity. You know, how clear are they about about what's important to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm missing the fourth, but I think it's about. <laughs> you know, I'll remember it probably in about a few minutes. But there's different mm-hmm. constructs, so it's really just getting at that. You know, how um, much decisional conflict do they have? And What's interesting about this construct, so you need a little bit of decision conflict in order to get somebody to pay attention to the decision. Mm. If they have no decision, con- you know, mm-hmm. if you have no decisional conflict and you don't think this is a big deal, you're not gonna maybe spend the time to watch the video or spend the time to do a little bit of work. So you need a little bit to kind of get you, okay, I need to do something here, but you don't want too much because we know if there's too much decisional conflict, they're usually, par- you know, it's just kind of a paralysis, uh, you know, and they, and they don't tend to make decisions, they want to defer it uh because they don't feel like they're you know able to to really participate so um hmm. that's you know a little bit of the nuance of of yeah. this outcome
0: uh can i just repeat back to you what i'm hearing you say if that's okay, okay? uh and you can maybe help me uh under- see if i've understood it right which is okay. in the world of decision making and here we're talking medical decision making and uh I, later in this conversation we'll be talking mostly about screening and in the in the cancer world how do you decide whether to screen or not, et cetera, right? So broadly speaking, medical decision-making. In that world, we have to have enough decisional conflict, i.e. you need to be, the patient needs to, or the family member needs to have enough confusion, enough um, agency, I'm making up words here, guys, and I I don't think you've said this, but. uh, This is my interpretation of it.
2: It's enough, if it's enough of, right. I mean, otherwise you'll just go along your life and you wouldn't do anything. you know, so either your knee pain has to be bad enough that you're saying, oh gosh, I'm gonna call a doctor now. Mm -hmm. You know, so you might be, you know, if it's not enough, you might not, there Mm -hmm. might not be a trigger such that you'll be doing something. So usually there needs to be at least something going on that triggers you to say, oh, Mm hmm, maybe what I'm doing now isn't the right thing and I should think about Mm -hmm. something else, whether that's getting a test Trying some treatment, you know, seeking um, an opinion with a doctor. So I think there has to be some level of of, of uh, to kind of increase your vigilance, you know. Otherwise, you'll just go along your day and do your things you're doing and not have to deal with any medical stuff. You know, most people don't live in the medical world and don't really want to think about this. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah. Un- until you get a cancer diagnosis. <laughs> And then then, then you very much live in the medical world. Yeah. But I think, so, so just to play on that, right? So there's enough of this conflict. And then what that, that translates to, like when we break down the decisional conflict, we're looking at enough uncertainty. We're looking at essentially the lack of information or the lack of understanding of the information that needs to be enough ambiguity within that kind of information gathering or understanding of the information. But there's also about understanding and getting to clarity around Goals, values, okay. how you want to live your life, et cetera. Is that a fair summary?
2: That is definitely a fair summary. And now I just remembered the fourth element, which is pressure and support. So, do you have enough either support to make this decision or are you feeling pressured from others? Um, huh. And I can give you an example of the decisional conflict for medical decision making. It kind of ties with um, one of the examples Lee did around prostate cancer screening. So, um, you know, researchers did a, did a randomized trial and, and looked at um, uh, men who were going to a wellness clinic um, and asked them about their decisional conflict for mm. PSA testing, a usual care group, and there was little to no decisional conflict. They were all expecting to get a PSA test and then they gave them the decision aid that talked about, oh, do you know their options? Do you know that you know even if you get a diagnosis of prostate cancer, one of the treatment options is actually no treatment at all you know because of you know the issues of the this disease might be or we might be screening mm. and finding disease that either takes a long time or would never have caused you any problems. And that raised people's you know, concern that they really had never thought about it. It was just screening a good thing. I'm a good patient. I'm going to get my screening test. I don't think about it. And now we've all of a sudden given them an option and raised some uncertainty about whether this is the right thing to do. So the decisional conflict actually went higher um, in the group that got the decision aid because now they realize this is a decision and not something they can just leave to the doctor and maybe mm-hmm. they need to think about mm. how they feel about this and, and hmm. which you know option they might want to to pursue. Uh, so can we just play that out?
0: And, and uh, I'd love to get Dr. Simmons, you into the conversation from a clinical perspective. So uh, in, in this in this sort of uh, randomized controlled trial setting, essentially what's happened is we've increased the decisional conflict, and we've taken kind of an otherwise like I don't think about it, of course I'm going to do it, and actually introduced uncertainty in some way and introduce actually more education, which you would argue is a great thing because you want patients to make decisions that are aligned with their values and therefore it's it's a really good thing. But then can we look at it from the clinical perspective, which is now you have a patient who's shown up in an otherwise, people don't talk about it. You know, We ordered the test, you're good. And now you have a patient who's shown up who actually has a lot of questions, hopefully, about a topic. And an otherwise insignificant decision is now is eating up some number of minutes of an appointment.
1: Yeah, and every minute counts, you know, um, or, or something doesn't get discussed because of this. Yeah, really, really big concern. Um, to use the PSA example, if you want to do it right, you've made the job of being the doctor and of being the patient a bit harder, a, lo- a little more work. Um, and and you'll get this, well, my friend's doctor, and for whatever reason, I'm making a terrible generalization, but men seem to talk about their PSA numbers with each other all the time. I don't know why, but it seems, well, my friend said his was whatever, and his doctor just orders it, you know, it's no big deal. And you just, you'll have to decide how much are you wanting to invest in this conversation about why one would or wouldn't. But I will say that, You know, with the right training about how to do this, there there are ways to make these conversations efficient and effective and getting to the core of the matter. What, you know, why would we offer this test? Why would you consider getting it done? What would be a downside? What might happen that you wish... Would make you not wish you hadn't had this test. Um, And then how are we going to proceed? And and there are ways to do that uh, well that can make it less and less burdensome. And I will say not to romanticize shared decision-making too much, but when I've had conversations with patients about PSA testing, I've learned the most interesting reasons people would want to test or would not want to test. Um, You know, my wife and I, we adopted our daughter when we were 50. I need to be around a very long time. I'll accept any medical intervention that improves my chances of uh, living a long time um, and not dying of prostate cancer, something that you've said to me may be a preventable cancer. Or other patients who say, the side effects you just talked about, (laughs) the side effects of prostate surgery, not for me. I am very proud of my function and to deal with incontinence or impotence, no way. So, it, you know, you are, you are having a chance to explore. You and your patient get to sit and share and talk about something and you're learning a little bit more about them and they're learning how you operate too. I do think there's a great building of trust in those conversations, but it does take more time. The good thing is it's usually a long conversation just the first time. Uh, this is important enough that it sticks with people, the, the weighing of the pros and cons. So um, that, that's my thought.
0: Uh, can I, I'm gonna ask you a follow-up to that, if that's okay. So yeah. can we go back to, you ch- earlier in the conversation, you shared an example of you doing training with clinicians, right? Mm-hmm. training clinicians on how to have shared decision-making conversations. Yes. And now we sort of um, are talking about the scenario where if you do provide a decision aid to a patient, There is an impact on time span, and we know every minute counts. So can you give us an example of what you might tell a clinician to show them how, even with the introduction of additional information, decision aids, they can have an efficient and effective um, interaction with the patient?
1: Yeah, so so in almost every study of what are the barriers to do, share, doing shared decision-making, you know, way up there is the time that this is going to require. And while um, we would never make the case that it's going to save time to use a decision aid, um, the goal is that it would be fairly time-neutral um, if introduced properly, if it's done as pre-work hmm. for a visit. Logistics are hard here, (laughs) getting this to patients at the right time when they're ready, when they're facing a decision, and getting them to watch it and review it. Mm -hmm. Um, But your conversations can be at a much higher level Mm -hmm. at that point. I'll give a quick example I often share of a patient of mine who I saw him for a visit, and I had been watching his blood sugar numbers, but he had crossed the threshold by the time of that testing into diabetes. Mm -hmm. And I called him and I said, "Listen, I've got this video I want you to watch." And this video and booklet, by the way, this was one of our decision days that was available in Spanish as well. And um, I sent it to him. And I, frankly, had not known him to be someone who asked me a lot of questions before, or did a lot of did a lot of research on his own into health conditions. He, he actually did talk to people. I that I, I, it was true. But he came to that next visit. Um, I was really preparing to have a long conversation about medications for the high blood sugar, that kind of thing, which is why I scheduled a separate visit to talk about it. And he started the conversation and said, so should I start metformin or not? He had watched the video. He'd read the booklet. He got it. Like we, so listen, I'm not going to say it saved us time. It might have, but I do think it got us to the next level. And so over the long run, you're giving high quality information. You're having high quality conversations. And that's what we want.
0: Uh, Can I follow up to, actually, that's that's such a good example, Uh, because I've never never met this patient, don't know anything beyond what you just told me. But can we talk about patient stratification? So what I mean by that is I'm assuming, and I'm I'm just going to use activation, activation here meaning how, just to give a quick definition, like how uh, activated is this individual? How confident are they in the decision making? You are the experts here, so please correct me, guys. But essentially, activation becomes kind of one scale that we can probably segment on. Um, how do you segment patients? Do you have patients who show up always activated? And when you give a decision-making tool to them, what is the impact? And then what about the patients, kind of the one you've exa- given an example around, where they may not have been previously as activated, but the decision aid has actually activated them, and now the level of decision-making has gone up? So can you talk a little bit about how the patients, um, what, are, what are the kind of trends you see?
2: So I can maybe start a little bit. So, you know, in the in the research world, we actually do um, assess, uh, you know, their sort of desire for involvement and sort of either being, you know, a little more passive or a little more active, as you're sort of mentioning. And uh, I think one of the big insights there is it's not a static um you know, a static characteristic, that it can actually change. And it does change if they, you know, start to understand, you know, get good information and understand what their role is, and that we're not mm-hmm. asking them to be a doctor, we're just asking them to help us understand who they are, what they care about, and giving them mm-hmm. the tools to feel like they can actually participate in that conversation. So we know that by giving whether it's decision aids or some coaching, um, you can really, uh, get people to a level where they really are, you know, kind of ready and feel prepared to have that conversation um, and, you know, get them some good practice. I mean, it helps when you have a physician like mm-hmm. Lee who's, you know, really going to be thoughtful and um, listen, you know. So I think, you know, we do hear some stories from patients that it's really challenging when they feel like they're ready to ask questions and want to be engaged and then get kind of shut down, you know, mm-hmm. with whether it's like, oh, well, we just do colonoscopies. You know, you, you saw that decision, aid, and you wanted a stool test, but colonoscopy is the gold standard, so let's just do that. Um, right. And so that that's really challenging for folks. But I do think um, uh, getting people, you know, making sure that we don't, um, uh, too early on, we don't want to just tie someone into a, a specific lane, because you can move mm-hmm. and, and grow. Hmm. It's a really nice way of putting it. Thank you.
1: Samira, if I could add something, it's not so much about activation, but it's a little bit more about um, a health system's readiness Mm -hmm. to accommodate shared decision-making. Like, what is your practice doing? What is your um, uh, population health management group thinking of this? And I'll give the example of being a new doctor, new primary care doctor. Um, I was You know, really jazzed about shared decision making. I had, I had (laughs) definitely um, bought into it as a as a resident doctor in training. And here I was practicing at the same hospital, have my large panel of patients now, and start getting compared to other doctors in my group on our colorectal cancer screening, Mm -hmm. and got called out at a meeting for relatively lower rates of colonoscopy Mm -hmm. use for my patients. And I said, well, wait a second, I do the stool tests for a lot of these patients who don't wanna do colonoscopy. And then all these eyes whipped toward me and said, <laughs> stool tests, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, the front desk said you were ordering a lot of those. That's subpar care. But this, but we're sending out a decision aid at our hospital that offers this as a very reasonable colorectal cancer screening test. And it is, (laughs) but I would talk to my patients about which one do you want? And if they chose that, I said, go right ahead. Um, If you don't have, if, if the incentives are misaligned, you can crush a, uh, a patient who's ready for it and a doctor who's ready for it mm-hmm. um, for making these kind of, or, you know, if what if the patient's insurance company is calling and being critical of a decision or their neighbor or whoever <laughs> or their spouse. So I just mentioned that, that it's not only in the conversation one-on-one, but uh, larger forces, sometimes cultural forces, administrative forces um, that are dinging people. We have caught up immensely since then. Just to be clear, and Karen and I have a close relationship with our population health management group on on these kind of measures and and actually documentation of a, of a high quality shared decision on things like this. But I, I want to mention that aspect because that is, that factors in quite often.
0: Uh, I really go ahead, Karen. I see. you're I was going to say decision. just to
2: add. I think the other sort of um, you know unseen, but you know these forces that are kind of driving care part of it was because they actually didn't have a way to track stool testing they yeah, only had a true. way in the electronic medical record to track colonoscopies so that's what the quality measure was mm. yeah, you know so so to meet the HEDIS, you know there there's sort of measures that you have to meet for insurance companies and and you know to 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 meet your quality benchmarks and it was really just because we didn't have a great way at that time of tracking stool testing so it just didn't count towards her how many, what percentage of your patients are up to date with testing. And that shouldn't be driving the decisions no. that patients make, right? You know, we should be thinking about how do we support what's most important to this patient, not what our EMR can track and document. Um, and so I think, you know, trying to understand uh, how we might uh, inadvertently or explicitly be uh, withholding options or decisions from patients uh, mm. when they really should have a voice. Um, Doug Lee, I think you were going to say something.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, no, but just to say, yeah, it it was an administrative issue primarily, Mm -hmm. but that leads to a misunderstanding among clinicians that we think it's not so good. And so why would we do that when Mm -hmm. we had every reason to do it? I mean, I had two patients with colon cancer that got picked up that way and they had refused colonoscopy for a long time, but agreed, didn't know there was another option. So I was, Pretty happy with using that as a method for patients um but yeah no it, it, it there, there's a lot that you uncover when you get into this world of offering more options and trying to track it
0: um i, I almost have a share of, uh I, I normally don't do this uh, but i, I am going to share a personal story which i think uh from a decision-making perspective is I, i'd love to take on it i'll tell you what happened and then i'd love your response to it um, just from the uh, analysis of what you guys uh, do, so I, I was uh, got diagnosed with triple positive breast cancer, and um, went through neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so six cycles of chemotherapy, then had a lumpectomy, and then had um, m- was making the decision on radiation vis-a-vis uh, Herceptin vis-a-vis hormone therapy, and uh, had a consult with the radiation oncologist. Um, decided, okay, fine, all right, I feel comfortable with doing radiation given the kind of pros and cons, but I was incredibly, incredibly uh, not comfortable with hormone therapy. And uh, I had gotten the call from the surgeon being like, yes, okay, we got to pathological complete response, which essentially translates to no evidence of disease, uh, chemotherapy worked really well, surgery worked really well, we, you sort of have gotten to the point where it's a, it's a best possible outcome given the kind of cancer and given the treatment options. So everything was looking really good. But this notion of having to take on 10 years of hormone therapy was, it was debilitating for me. So I spent, I think, like two weeks prior to this appointment with my upcoming medical oncologist and read every. Possible thing I could read, everything. I I was, I was in PubMed rabbit hole. Right, <laughs> I, I think I went back to like nineteen eighties, something insane. Uh, I I read everything. So I come up with a decision making framework for myself. Came up with kind of the pros and cons, and was trying to figure out the risk. I to be clear, I'm a nerd like statistics. You know, I, I definitely I, I understand. I skew a certain way from a patient characteristic perspective. The conclusion I came to was it made no sense for me to do any hormone therapy, that in fact I should be getting more chemotherapy with a new um, HER2 drug that was coming on market because that way my overall risk profile would have gotten adjusted with the sort of risk benefit of hormone therapy, but then I wouldn't have to do it for 10 years. I would have to do it for, I don't know, three moments. Now, just to be super clear, everything that I ended up deciding for myself was uh, Samira driven. Uh, Oncologist had no opinion in this yet because this is all preparation for this appointment. And I walk in this appointment, present my case, and the oncologist just looks at me being like, what in the world? (laughs) How in the world did you come up with this idea? It is not guidelines. No one has done it before. Best case you could do this is a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. you've basically made up a new pathway. I was like, fair enough. I think that's actually a fair fair assessment. But I would love clinical feedback as to why it's empirically wrong. Because we treat patients on cohorts, and the data available for a 30-year-old female triple positive breast cancer, just to be super clear, is the N is really, really small. So when we're doing guideline-based care, the N is really small. If your n is really small then my conclusion is at least as valid as the conclusion coming from guidelines so how, how do we navigate this so all this to say that it got escalated tumor board tumor board came back with a different recommendation and we sort of were navigating uh, this very new pathway and i did get guideline based treatment at the end of it but we did have do more tests, we confirm the diagnosis, we, we, there was a lot more that happened. So I'd love your sort of feedback on that experience from a shared decision-making perspective.
2: Any reactions? I, I see Karen, uh, I, right. <laughs> First it's great, I mean, you know, I think, um, and I think in the context of this being a PCORI, you know, like Grant, you know, the idea that we should be taking um, ideas, thoughts, you know, study design questions from the patients who are living with this um, and living with these treatments and having to face these um, is absolutely like fantastic. You know, so so that you were so invested in trying to figure out um, how to make something work for you. Um, I wish we had a system that was maybe, you know, I was trying to figure out, you said going into battle almost like with your oncologist, you know, I wish we had a system that you didn't feel like you were battling and that you felt like they were all supporting you and, and that they were actually on your side trying the best that they could to you know figure out what's going to meet your needs um, and not making assumptions about what risk tolerance you have you know which might be different than whoever made those guidelines um, uh, so you know I, I I applaud you for for doing that and I wish we had systems that supported patients to think about you know with you know within reason how do we really make this work for you. Uh, so karen just to be clear i think
0: my mental state did feel like a battle but i don't think my oncologist received it that way that way so i think by this point in time they were no longer surprised <laughs> i think by now they have kind of just been like all right so I, I, you know I it's interesting we, one of the yeah.
2: first cases that got you know me interested in this in the very beginning like when i was in in grad school we had you know we're looking into someone's decision and this was after the fact and so she was reflecting on you know she had had a mastectomy and ended up having immediate reconstruction which um you know takes you know eight weeks to kind of recover from and and the challenge was she was regretting this because um at the time her mother was going blind and she was trying to save money to take her mother on this trip to europe and this you know she had to use up all of her vacation time she had to use up some savings just to get through that recovery and she didn't even mention it to the surgeon until after the fact, and the surgeon was horrified because she said, "We did not have to. We could have done the reconstruction any time. We didn't have to do this now." Yes. I, you know, so how do we? Like it was a completely avoidable, you know, event where she could have, you know, recovered in a week and gotten to take her mom on this trip. Um, you know, so how do we make sure that those kinds of things come into the discussions, as opposed to just doing a rote? Well, here's the path. You know, if you're interested in, in reconstruction mm. or here's the path, if you're doing the chemo and and
1: mm. you know, fall in line. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Yeah. Oh Samira, that you know, it's quite a story. And I just keep thinking about it. i recognize how like to to present something different to one's care team, even if you're as activated as you obviously are and practice. That is a real act of great bravery. And how do we make it so that anyone could do that uh, without needing to be exceptionally brave? Um, That's something I'm, I'm thinking about and how care usually only gets better if we invite the people who are living with the condition every day to contribute the thoughts they have been having about their disease. I was thinking as you were talking about that, and then I looked it up to confirm I remember the story correctly. Um, There's an oncologist at Mayo Clinic, um, Vincent Rajkumar, who I remember him telling a story. He does a lot more work with myeloma, but also in drug pricing. And I remember him telling a story about a patient uh, advocate who, uh, or a patient is how I was misremembering it, um, who suggested that the doses that in treatment for myeloma that oncologists were giving extremely high doses of steroid when they didn't need to do that anymore because they had thalidomide Mm. and other medicines. And he suggested doing a trial of a lower dose of steroid. And that has, of course, revolutionized how they treat that cancer now. That was 20 years ago. When I looked it up to make sure I had the facts right, I didn't realize he was actually a patient advocate on an ECOG panel. So he really was in a position where he could, you know, come up with that, that I didn't get that voice, but it was drawn from personal hor- horrendous experience. And, um, I think we need to be doing more of that, especially for people who are in very unusual situations where very few people have the cancer that they have in 2023. Uh, I like think that's the, also the thing we forget about, um, like, are we stuck in the time when you were in training um, and you're thinking about the patients you saw then? How do we get to 2023? And nobody is going to be as invested in how you do as as you are. And how do we harness that is something that I think there needs to be more invitation to um, come up with ideas. Because as a primary care doctor, I take care of many people who have illnesses and afflictions we don't have a name for yet, or nobody can diagnose it. And a lot of it is how you manage your life through that. And we need to invite their ideas on what has worked and what hasn't to develop treatment plans with them.
0: Uh, Dr. Simmons, I absolutely love how you just summarized it, because I think that essentially summarizes a lot of the conversations we've had on this part of our episode. And I'm just going to do a quick summary. And I'm actually going to bring us to a close for part one, because, um, I'm one watching the clock, but do I also just, I, I love kind of where we've ended up with this, which is, We started out broadly with shared decision making. We sort of provided frameworks and structures to explain what it is, uh, decisional conflict, the things that underlie decisional conflict. We spoke about many, many examples that both of you shared on uh, patients who are navigating PSA testing, colorectal, colorectal cancer screening, how decision making is not just what transpires in that room between the patient and the clinician, but it is about also health system readiness. What are the incentives that are at play from an from insurance perspective, a hospital administration perspective? Is the system really set up to enable shared decision making and to uh, accept both clinical readiness and the patient readiness? So we spoke about that. And then we also spoke about uh, sort of your reactions to uh, decision making when it comes to rare diseases, diseases we don't have names for, complex diseases like breast cancer, and how we would love to see a world in which the patient expert opinion that you mentioned earlier in the conversation is is accepted as a norm across the board. So uh, with that, I'm going to bring part one to a close. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, And I'm looking forward to doing part two with both of you. This episode was supported by an award from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. This podcast, show notes, and newsletter is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or any materials linked from this blog is at the user's own risk. The content here is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.